Um, Adrian sprung that one on me a little bit. You know when somebody says to you, you've news, and you go, what? And I'm looking at Karen and go, what the news? <laughs> and it's, it seems like so long ago now. So we were on holiday, came back, and within a couple of days, uh, we're positive with COVID. And uh, our younger son and his family, five of them, all came down with COVID for the second time. So we came back, didn't see them, and our older son and his wife were expecting their second baby. So we couldn't see them either. And now she ended up two weeks late, and the second uh, little child for them and our fifth grandchild was born on Father's Day. And it was two days after the son's 40th birthday, and we couldn't see them. So they were on their way home from the Ulster Hospital with this little um, baby seat, wiggling at the front door, and you're sort of going, oh, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. And we had to live on photographs, virtual sort of contact, until we had our first cuddle. So he's Samuel, and uh, Hannah is delighted. Um, she just calls him Samwam at the minute, or baby, baby Sam. So that's probably what he'd get when he comes up, just like our Sam here, baby Sam. So that's what my news is, I think. Is that right? And yeah, I, I am on the other side, and Karen's on the other side of, of recovery from COVID. So there you go. So uh, it's my task. Are we, uh, how did you find that? Oh, isn't that unbelievable? That's Hannah and that's Samwam. So there you go. Fantastic. Probably we posted that on Facebook and with the amazing man. So there you go. So it's my, my uh, task to sort of launch this series. And normally what I do is I'll take a Bible passage and we work through some stuff. But I said, I'm not going to do that. Because if we're spending the summertime trying to say, well, how do we spend the summertime? Often we think it's um, the normal things are set aside. You know, the rules that we used to abide by are sort of slackened a wee bit, you know, and it's a bit like we say it's grandma and grandpa's and nana and papa's rules, you know, apply now, not mommy and daddy's rules. It's that sort of thing. Um, and we tend to spend more time enjoying ourselves. We're less likely to be looking at the clock. Do you know that? That's just how it is. And I think people are a bit more casual. So I said, I thought for me, how do we think through the next couple of months about how we do theology and about how we live faithfully. Because I think for me that's the most important thing. This is the verse, that, the verses that I really want to spring off from. And they're very familiar. Heaven and earth being created at the start of Genesis. Heaven and earth were finished down to the last detail. By the seventh day, God had finished his work. And on the seventh day, he rested from his work. God blessed the seventh day, he made it a holy day, because on that day he rested from his work and all the creating that he'd done, six days of it. And then he set aside a seventh day where he didn't work, and he rested. So that got me thinking about how I was brought up a bit about Sabbath day observance, as it was called, or Sunday observance, and how that has changed a bit. So when you look back at that passage, it starts off in the beginning, and John 1 starts off in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and in Greek, it says God was the word. So it's back repeating Genesis 1.1, back at the start of John with the recreation. And it's pointing back the fact God was the creator and also the sustainer of the universe. So he left us instructions about how, a bit like the manufacturer's warranty, about how we live well. And we've got 66 books, Old and New Testament, plus lots of other writings to help us understand and navigate all of that. But he sent the son because people weren't listening to the prophets and they weren't listening to the people who were reading those 39 books of the Old Testament. And then he sent his spirit, when Jesus ascended, Jesus sent his spirit into the world to empower us and help us learn how to live better together. And the reason I'm saying this is sometimes 
we focus on the rule and not the reason for the rule. In other words, what we're doing is focusing on observance of Sunday rather than why the rule was put there in the first place. So I want to think a wee bit about the role of rules and about how theology picks up that. There was a misunderstanding had gained momentum among the Jewish people at the time and they had 613 what they called precepts of the law and they defined how you lived. And it was a bit like joining the dots. I mean, it was who you could speak to, how far you could walk, what you did on a Sunday, whether you could take a, a donkey out of a well, for example, whether you could heal someone. But it became a rubric, it became a set of rules, precepts that people lived by. And in a sense, it wasn't animated by God's spirit, but it became very forensic, it became very legalistic. And Jesus challenged his disciples and those around by saying, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to make the requirements of the Sabbath. He actually reversed what had been happening, where rules had become the yardstick by which you judged faith. So the more times that you kept the 613 precepts, the more holy you were. And that's why Paul was able to say, as before the law, I was righteous. Because if he was measuring his holiness by the amount of times that he kept the law, then he was perfect. But then he says, I count all of that stuff as loss because of knowing Christ. So when we're thinking about holy days and high days, it's not enough to focus on the law. My experience in previous jobs that I've been in that have been working with the law leads me to the place where I don't believe law does much else than modify behavior. So we're not allowed to smoke in the building, but you can smoke outside. You know, when you get into a car, you put a seatbelt on, not because you want to. Now you know you do it because it keeps you healthy, but at the start, there was all sorts of problems over it. And rules moderate and modify our behaviors in certain circumstances. But in and of themselves, they rarely change your attitude, unless you realize the reason for the rule. So I now belt up, not because I'm required by law to do it, but because it's a good thing to do. So it's not the law that makes me do it, it's the reason the law is there that makes me do it, the need to preserve life. Do you see the difference? And therefore, if we simply go through life, even in the Christian tradition, telling people, here's all the laws that you've got to do to be a good Christian, people then focus on the law, on the rules, and not the reason that they're there. So I want to sort of challenge that thinking because I was being brought up, and there were various rules, and I was going to ask you what your rules were, but mine when I was growing up was you don't turn around in church and I remember some well-meaning older lady saying to me, do you remember what happened to Lot's wife? And I'm thinking, what was that what you told me? And so if I turn around, I'm going to turn into a pillar of salt or something. I remember as a seven-year-old, the fear of God coming into me. And I was frightened to turn around in church. This is, I mean, I'm not making a true story. I remember, don't talk in church. Could you apply that into Beaver or turn up in time for a service? remember and as soon as it's finished it's out none of this handshaking nonsense or coffee or tea imagine spoiling the church by that only use the king james or the authorized version that was what paul used and that's what we'll use and that has its own issues that i'll come to later and then don't touch the apples at harvest time well you see do you know that was one of the lesser laws and if nobody was looking i didn't look around still by the way i had to walk backwards but i i, I have to say that i did take an apple or two you know, but I'm sure, I thank you. Did you or did you not? This is church? No, never. <laughs> Hands up if you believe him. He just said he never fills the nap. Now you see. There you go. 
so I want to talk theology, and theology are two Greek words. It's theos logos, and it's really how you chat about God. It's about having conversations about God, and it draws on a number of threads. Jesus' teaching is at the core of it, but sometimes within the evangelical tradition, it's as though Paul's teaching are more important than Jesus, because all the Bible verses tend to be around Paul. And in the Catholic tradition that I would have been around, and in the Protestant side of that Catholic tradition, it was much more emphasis on Jesus. Now, it's simply not that it's one or the other, it's not binary, but it's just different about how we approach stuff and about how we see theology being formed. And I remember going through and doing theology at, at college, and I'm sure Adrian was told the same thing. You get all the systematic theology, and you're told, for example, about atonement and how it works out, and it's being taught as if at one point in time somebody sat down and said, this is how Jesus' death on the cross, this is what it means. Instead of saying it evolved over a period of a thousand years. I mean, if somebody talked about ransoming now, what would that mean? And yet at the time of Jesus, if someone took someone from your family, you would go to them, you would pay a ransom and get them back. And therefore, when Jesus was offered by his father to the devil, as though he was buying back our salvation, the ransom idea was used. So that's an archaic idea, but it has now become so formalized within the Christian tradition that we're not quite sure where it came from. And it's not that it's not important, but sometimes we don't ask questions about well, why is that there? And we just expect people to accept it. I'm suggesting that we need to have the Bible in one hand and, as Karl Barth said, the newspaper in the other. Because it's where those two things come together that theology is birthed, that we really understand what it is that we believe. So how do we do theology? Well, there's been a tradition, particularly within evangelicalism, that is a body of facts that you pass on from one generation to the other. And the scribes, the Masoretes who wrote the Old Testament, over a period of 900 years, they passed on the writing of the Old Testament. And they had a midpoint in the Old Testament, and they looked to see if a Hebrew character was that midpoint, and if it wasn't, they scrapped the writing. They had all sorts of checks and balances to see if they were handing on the tradition perfectly. And they did over 900 years, so when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was only two small changes in the scroll of Isaiah over a thousand years. That's how perfect these people wanted the passing on of the tradition to be. But what they weren't so perfect about was what was behind it, what the meaning was that lay in those words. It became more important almost the form than actually what they were there to do. So I'm suggesting that when I was growing up, certainly there was no space created to discuss theological difficulties. I just didn't have that. You just were told this is what it is and you accept it. And even if I had questions, who could I go and talk to? And what I did then was pass on what I'd learned. And what I'd learned came through the King James of the Authorized Version. Now, it's not that there's anything wrong or right about it. There's no one true version of the Bible. But when I was growing up, I really didn't understand the King James Version. It was beautiful poetry, but sometimes the words were not very easy to understand. For example, unicorn appears nine times in the King James Version of the Bible. Unicorn. Do you remember the Irish Rovers had a wee song that was about Noah and he couldn't get the unicorn in to the ark? Do you remember? And the unicorn therefore died because it didn't come into the ark. Nine times the words mentioned in the authorised version of the Bible. How? Because there was an ox around about 3,000 years before Jesus that was quite domesticated, had a couple of long horns, and the name that the Hebrew people used of it was translated single horn. So when they translated the Bible into Greek, they used the word single horn, monokolos, 
When it was translated into Latin, they used the word unicorn, one horn. And therefore, the unicorn was a definition of what the Hebrews understood as an ox. So nine times in the Old Testament, in the authorized version, we have unicorns. Now, does that mean unicorns exist? No, because the word was applied to something that 2,000 years later, people hadn't seen. And it's like Jonah and the whale. It's a big fish. The Leviathan and Job, you know, this big creature. No one's quite sure what it is. So there were things in the Bible I really struggled with. And most of my teachers were white and were male, were older, and had been trained through theological college. And therefore, it's very, Adrian's in that. And it's also, it's also hard to set aside the fact, now he's really looking for himself, sorry, Adrian. Um, so, so that's BC, by the way, before computers. So we, we have this idea, how, how can we, have male, white, older men passing on the faith without their lens in some shape or form forming what it is we hear. Now, I'm not saying it was wrong. I'm simply saying all translation is interpretation. So if we're struggling for a Bible that is the proper inspired translation, you will not find it. Because every single Bible, I don't use the word versions because I don't like that. Every single Bible is a translation, we say, but it's actually not. It's an interpretation of 23,000 Greek texts in the case of the New Testament. And people then look at the words, how it's been applied like the unicorn, and they apply it there. For example, King James didn't like full baptism. The Greek word for baptism always means total immersion, always in Greek. But it's translated baptism in the authorized version to get around King James because he didn't like the idea of total immersion, he wanted to be sprinkled. And therefore the authorized version filtered out the notion of total immersion and put it in baptism to allow sprinkle, pouring, or whatever you wanted. Also King James wanted the Church of England to be the ascendant church. So in the authorized version, they talk about bishops and priests and elders and deacons. They call the church the church, not the congregation, because the king who commissioned the Bible that was his way of trying to say, this is the type of faith I want taught. So there was political involvement in it. Now that's not to say there's anything wrong with the translation. It's simply to say, be aware that all the Bibles that we read are interpretations, mostly by men. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this, but as I said, I grew up in a church where women weren't ordained in the Church of Ireland. But it surprised me to know that Quakers had ordained women from the 17th century, Methodists for the last 200 years, the Church of the Nazarene since 1908, and Pentecostalism had its first female minister in 1975. In the Church of Ireland, you know who that is. She's been here, bless this pulpit. She was made bishop in 2013. But the very first time in the Anglican tradition there was a woman who was ordained priest was in Hong Kong, just at the end of the war. In the Church of Ireland, the synod here passed it in May 1990. And you can see there that the first female bishops, uh, sorry, the first female deacons were very late in time. So our tradition, our theology has been mediated and moderated mostly through white, older men. And therefore, the whole notion of how we see things like headship and women's ministry, there hasn't been the same input from women ministers and teachers in that. Thankfully, that's addressed now. And we're at least having those hard conversations. Let me give you an example of how culture enters in. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember what happens? Priest, the Levite, 
pass by on the other side of the road and the good Samaritan comes, who do you identify with? It's always the Samaritan, isn't it? If you were in the African or Latin American church, the Western church is the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side. Because that's how they see us. The contextual place that you sit in affects how you read scripture. And to say the only way that we can understand scripture is the Western way is incorrect in my view. It's not about right or wrong. It's about saying there are other views. It's like a diamond. The light comes through and the prism effect passes out. And it could be in a different place in a different uh, time of your life. Scripture might have a very different meaning. That verse spoke to me and I'm now 60 and it didn't speak to me. That doesn't mean that somehow you've changed. It means that God's word is infinitely changing in the sense of how it applies. So the same Bible in the same churches across the world can be interpreted differently. And there are just some of the things. Who knows what's right and wrong in the ordination of women? I grew up genuinely believing women shouldn't be ordained. I would have chosen not to have gone to a church with a woman minister. I have changed dramatically in that view. And it's not that God has changed, but my encounter with Scripture, my encounter with women who are in ministry, my reading of Scripture, my theology, if you like, my doing Scripture, has changed. Does that make me less? No. Does it mean I was arrogant? Yes. Because I would have said women shouldn't be ordained. Now, I'm not arguing for a minute that that's right. It's for me right. It may be for other people different. Headship, the whole idea of the role of women, has been a fractious debate and remains a fractious debate through the churches. Baptism I talked about earlier, <clears throat> whether you're baptized for the second time because the first time you were a child, you didn't know what it was about. And then churches say, but you can't be baptized twice. And I remember two friends of mine going through college who fell out and didn't talk to each other for over two years because of adult baptism. It was such an important thing for them. And this is a silly thing. I was sitting down in Ballygolly uh, having a cup of coffee and listening to a conversation behind me and people were about to appoint a minister to their church and the question was asked where does he stand on the three H's and I'm thinking what's all that about headship was one hell was the second and homosexuality was the third and they would not have this discussion because one was what we would call a nominator and they grilled this guy on his theology and those three things and I'm thinking did you ask him about compassion about care, about integrity, about honesty, about how he would do church. No, they wanted to see, in the words of one of them, was he sound? And they measured soundness in the three H's. Hell, homosexuality, and headship. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's commonplace, but I'm saying that it is common. It is around. Culture slips into our hymns. The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. Do you believe that? Did God really say, well, he's going to be poor and he's going to be rich? And then I vow to thee, my country, all earthly things above. You know that story, that song, don't you? And then the next verse, but there is another country. And there's almost a juxtaposition around nationalism about what you believe to be the ultimate cause of laying down your life in the context of war. I get that. But we're in the middle of all of this changing around the notion of countries and love and loyalty. Now, it's simply to say that how we learn theology is in scripture, it's in teaching, it's in the songs that we sing, it's the prayers we pray. And I'm simply saying be aware of what's there. So does theology change? I, I think it does. 
Now, that doesn't mean God changes. It doesn't mean that God's will for his people changes. But it simply says that culture changes and how we understand and apply what we believe God's saying has to change. Now, an example, I grew up with Sunday observance. I grew up in an area that the swings were locked, Armo Park. When I went over on a Sunday, I wasn't allowed to, but had I sneaked into the park on a Sunday, first of all, the park was closed. And then secondly, uh, the swings were tied up. And I said to you before, I had a friend who was Catholic, and after 12 o'clock he could play football on a Sunday. And I wanted to be Catholic to play football on a Sunday. I mean, it's genuine when I was eight years old, because I couldn't understand. But I knew my tradition meant you didn't do stuff on a Sunday. What about the, the type of Bible you use? I talked about the King James, now it's the NIV. As somebody said, now, the newly inspired, or the now indispensable, whatever it is. But the most important thing is you have a version, so-called that you're comfortable with, and that's easy to read and helps you. Hell has changed dramatically in terms of how people understand it in the Christian tradition. People grew up with it being far and eternal. Now there's a huge debate goes on about annihilation. Do we all, people who don't believe, do they become annihilated at the end of time? And is it just Christians in the new earth and heaven? If you haven't heard the debate, don't worry about it. I have to tell you it's raging in theological colleges at the minute. There are people who have been excluded from fellowship because they've dared to doubt anything other than a traditional view of hell. What about divorce and remarriage? When I grew up, it was anathema. Now I have lots of friends who are both divorced and remarried and are serving as ministers in the Christian church in my lifetime. So things have changed. And then the place of the Catholic church. I grew up in a tradition that was telling me the Catholic church was a cult, C-U-L-T, it certainly wasn't Christian, and it was misplaced. Now, I have friends who still believe that. I personally don't anymore. But my theology in that has changed through encounter, through being able to engage people from another tradition, and being able to begin to test the levels of my own knowledge and realizing there's more stuff out there than I know. So how do we do theology? How do we weigh up the traditional and the orthodox view? How can we be open to God's spirit? Because it's important that we do learn and encounter God in his word. Absolutely. It's also true we should learn what the orthodox and traditional views have been. Absolutely. But if we're not having space for debate, then we do a disservice to the churches and how it applies itself to the world. For example, I'm suggesting to you, rather than in any subject that's contentious, that rather than say the Christian view is, or the biblical view is, or the Bible says, which are absolute, you should be saying, the orthodox view has been, or my reading of scripture leads me to believe that. Now, can you see the difference in those two things? You're not compromising anything by saying, this is my view, it's how I read scripture, or this is the traditional or orthodox view. But it allows for the fact that there are people who have other views. It doesn't talk there is right and there is wrong. Now, you might believe there is, and in some subjects, of course there's right and wrong. But the problem is most of theology is encountering areas of gray. It's areas where there isn't a simple answer that we can look to the Bible and say, well, that verse says nuclear war is wrong, for example. Or we shouldn't, you know, Russia shouldn't be doing that or Ukraine shouldn't be doing that. And I've seen people justify whether Donald Trump should have been minister or not on the basis of Old Testament texts with Cyrus. And I'm going, this is like escapology. How on earth do you do that? So evangelicals admit their tradition that we would know and love 
come from this background that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The, not a. He's absolute about that. But what he doesn't say is, Scripture is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I am not demeaning Scripture in any shape or form. I'm simply saying that Jesus says, people come to me and through me to the Father. And I am the truth. Now, you may find elements, you may find the way being prepared through Scripture. The Old Testament prophets foretold the coming of Jesus. But ultimately, what we need to do as a church is to be relational in our faith. And that first relationship is to get it right with Jesus through his spirit. And then in a constant putting off the old man and woman and putting on the new. That's sanctification. Because this is a journey. If you think you've arrived, if you think you've got the destination and you know everything there is to know on theology, then I'm afraid you've taken a wrong path somewhere, in my view. Because this is about learning. This is about engagement. This is about listening, for example, to what Adrian and Chris and others are saying. We don't have to believe it. We might want to challenge them. We might want to say, where did you get that from? Because therein is learning. I have this real fear that for some people, God is a bit like a Jenga puzzle. And we create God through theology. And God is a construction of our theology. We create God in our theological image. And he's male and he's white mostly. And he's an older person. You know, all the ladybird stuff that we've seen pictures of him, if you like, in the children's comics. That's how we imagine God. And therefore, if a piece of theology, let's take divorce and remarriage, comes up, we're saying, goodness, if we pull that little piece of Jenga out, it might just be enough, the tipping point, for God to fall. Now, we don't put it that way. We'll go, never. That's the slippery slope if you go down there. Or we might have it in something else like the ordination of women, where I've, I've actually had people say, that's impossible. You know, you can't ordain women and be a Christian. And I've sat in those discussions All I'm really saying is that if we've created God in our image and we create him like a Jenga, then we're never going to ask questions about bits of faith, about bits of theology that we really don't understand. Because God is bigger than our questions. This idea that God can't have questions. You look at the Psalms. David is pouring out his soul. He's screaming at God. Paul's the same. How on earth did you let this happen? He didn't just accept forensic theology as something passed on untouched from generations. It grew with encounter. It grew with his own experience, the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other. And that's what our church needs to be doing. We need to be saying, what are the hard things that are coming down the tracks? Because we need to understand, like Summer Manus has done over 35 years, how to present the gospel to a new generation that are unchurched, many of them. They don't know the stories. When I was in church, they said, we're now going to read from Ecclesiastes 10. They didn't give the page number because most people came to church, one with the Bible and two knew where Ecclesiastes was. Now, I'm not demeaning anything. I'm simply saying biblical literacy is different today. And we shouldn't take it for granted. People know the stories. So we rush people to Jesus that he's going to save them, and he will. But they don't know why Jesus was necessary because they don't know the story. So we maybe need to bring them back to God and his love and then why Jesus came. Sometimes we start too late in the story because there's a huge amount of love in the Old Testament. People who died for their faith before Jesus came. That's just one example. There are things coming down the tracks that we need to be prepared for. There are discussions around assisted dying at the minute. Euthanasia, some people are talking about Reproductive health, 
access determinations on the back of Roe versus Wade. And what distressed me was to see the two camps in America, you know, whether they celebrated or were crying, they were so polarized. And one calling down hellfire on the other. And I'm thinking, it's, look, whatever your view is on these things, surely we should have a space to have hard conversations. Surely we should have a space for encounter to actually hear the story of the other doesn't mean you're going to change. Everybody thinks that when they do that, they're compromising something. But if incarnation in the flesh means anything, it means that that's where our theology is earthed and grounded. LGB and transgender issues are there. And the church really needs to wrestle and understand what its views are in those things. It's going to be too late in 10 years' time when we have to catch up with the rest of the world. So, what's the purpose of rules? Well, I like to think of it this way. In any society, there are values. So if somebody was to go to an island and set up a new uh, society in that island, they would start with their values. What do we believe? And it might be integrity and honesty. Their rules will then reflect those values. So if someone comes to the island, they'll see you shouldn't kill anybody. You should look after children. And those rules will allow them to see this is a society that values people. So they look beyond the rules to the values. The same thing in Christian faith. Our theology reflects God. Our words about God point back to his values, to his love, his mercy, his forgiveness. Those things that sometimes are obscured in our theology. Because we use theological language. You know, it's been said Jesus was stopped outside the theological college in Dublin and asked who he was. Uh, and the, the priest replied, you're the eschatological manifestation of our ground of being, the very kerygma in which we find the grounds for our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus went, pardon? Because theologically that's accurate. But it's, it's, you can't get into it. You can't actually understand it. And sometimes we hide God in our theology. So I think in order to prepare over the summertime, we need to acknowledge our limitations. We don't know everything. We need to admit we failed in the past to deal with some of the hard issues. We need to understand our faith doesn't consist entirely with this unconnected body of doctrine. That unless that doctrine impacts where people are, unless that doctrine engages with the hard issues, unless we create safe places for us to hear the story of the other. In my previous life, I've been involved in a lot of cross-community stuff. And the first time people who maybe have been in jail for paramilitary activity understood the role of the other was in a safe place in an encounter. They didn't change. They didn't become less unionist or loyalist or nationalist or republican, but they learned to understand the other's story. They walked in the shoes of somebody for a short period of time. We need to walk in theological shoes of people who differ. We need actually to understand why it is they've come to that conclusion and not just to exclude them from fellowship. In other words, we need to learn to disagree with integrity and grace. So I guess learning is involving using our intelligence. I love C.S. Lewis. He said this, any amount of theology can be smuggled into people's uh, minds under the cover of fiction without them knowing it. In other words, if something's said positively with authority and backed up with a writer, a lot of people, yeah, that must be true. You know, rather than use your intelligence to analyze and to challenge and discuss. So I think churches like ours in the future, if we have these spaces for us to encounter those who are different, I think the benefit for society will be huge because it will help us learn how to do theology well.
Let's pray. Father, thank you um, that you didn't leave us simply with a set of books and a set of doctrine. We do thank you for scripture. We thank you for people who read and interpret and explain it to us. But above all else, we thank you that you demonstrated your love by sending Jesus into the world. And he is the one who walks beside us in his spirit to help us negotiate these difficult things. Help us as a church to be brave, to admit where we've made mistakes, but more importantly, help us to engage with a world that really sometimes doesn't understand us. Help us do theology well and with grace. Amen.